0: morning, everyone. Um, Junior Church, for those entering fourth grade and below, because this is when we switch, so those going into fourth grade or below, you're free to walk to the front. While they're doing that, I want to make a quick... um, We have a couple new families that are members here at the church. The Steiners, which was a month and a half ago, and I just kept forgetting to tell all of you. And then also the Jeffreys up here, they're the ones that had the one boring game, um, if you heard that. (laughs) yeah. But um, she leaned back, trusted it, and said, we thought the same thing. It wasn't that good. So I want to make sure you welcome those new families into the church. We're going to do something a little different here. I want you to do something. When I count to three, I want everyone to say their name out loud three times. No shouting. Just say your name three times. Okay? So when I count to three, does everybody understand the directions? Say your name. One, two, three Alright, so you've said your name. Who here heard the name Jesus? Did anybody hear the name Jesus? Okay, one person did, but she's unwilling to raise her hand, apparently. And if you want to know who it is, I'm not going to say her name, but she's laughing back there. Oh, there she is. She's raising her hand. Okay, Val, why did you hear the name Jesus? Because her husband, Ted, did not listen to the directions. He said, Jesus, actually, he listened to the direction. Why couldn't you guys hear the name Jesus? You're deaf. (laughs) That was good, Katie. Why else couldn't you hear Jesus? I told him not to yell. Well, he did say, Ted said Jesus. They're too far away, okay? Anything else? So you were listening for your name? You're just saying your name, so why didn't you hear him say Jesus? Too many other voices, distractions, or noises. Okay, so we're listening for our own names. We're distracted. We're too far away. There's all these things. With all the voices competing in this world to get our attention, many times in our lives, it is hard to hear the voice, to hear the call of Jesus. I heard about a barber once who was just coming to church and uh, the minister there uh, preached a really bold sermon on how to be a great strong witness and sharing the gospel and after the the message there was a, a class they were going to do to help teach you how to really evangelize and tell more people about Jesus and this barber's like I'm all in and so he went to these classes and he was all ready for it. He went three weeks, three nights a week for those three weeks and he decided on that first Monday after those classes, first person that comes in, I'm going to tell them and make sure they know about Jesus. And the bell rang as the door opened and he turned and it was this huge biker guy. And this biker guy tattoos all over and sits down in his chair and this barber starts getting nervous. And he's trying to figure it out. uh, How do I do this? Apparently this um, biker guy was in a very bad attitude because his long beard, he lost the bet and it had to be shaved. And so, not only is he a big beardy guy, now he's in a bad mood because he's no longer going to be beardy. And so, the barber's nerves got even worse. He put the protective sheet over the man, and he's starting to fumble, and he's getting nervous, and he's trying to remember what are those phrases I'm supposed to say? What? How am I supposed to do this? And as he picks up the clippers to go near the face, he goes, "Are you prepared to die?" How do you and I do when it comes to sharing the good news about Jesus, the gospel? Gospel means good news. There are some people that sharing the good news about Jesus just seems to become very natural to them. They just talk about it. For others, they find it incredibly difficult. They get tongue-tied and nervous. They even worry that they're going to say the wrong thing so they don't say it. Yet, Scripture has taught us, and you've heard people say it, we have to say something. God expects us to say something. If you know Jesus, you know he has changed you. And because of that, you know he can change other people as well. And and he wants you to share that message. We want to be a witness to this difference that Jesus has made in all of our lives. Right now we're in a series of scattered. Uh, The early church was growing fast but encountered a bunch of troubles in our last series. And then persecution came in the church. Scattered out. But as they were scattered, they kept telling people about Jesus. The 8th chapter of Acts zeroes in on such a Christian. His name was Philip. He's one of the first original deacons that we read in chapter 6. And even though Philip was called to the ministry of serving food, of helping these um, widows and people to get food, he didn't stop there. He, as well as Stephen, were powerful preachers. It says Stephen's preaching cost him his life. Because of that, Stephen's powerful proclamation, Saul, initiated a severe persecution against the church. We're going to learn a lot about Saul in the next coming month. Philip is one who left Jerusalem went into because of this persecution, but he didn't go silently. He went preaching and proclaiming the gospel. The beginning of chapter 8, we see God bringing salvation to the Samaritans. That's what we looked at last week. And this is, we're seeing the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the Samaritans, and to the ends of the earth. Because of this scattering, at least part of this promise is being realized within the first few years. The gospel is being preached in Samaritan, uh, Samaria, and last week we zoomed in on those groups that got it. There was a Simon the, Zell, or the, Simon the Magician and how he came to faith, and it wasn't a saving faith at first, um, and Peter had to call him out on that. By contrast, we're going to see someone who has a gen- genuine, authentic saving faith, and it's another odd character in the Scripture. So as we go into it, we're going to let's stop and pray, and then we're going to dive into the scripture. God, we praise you. We thank you that you lifted up and brought people like Philip to, to speak to all of us, to bring us your message of salvation. I ask right now that you speak again through Philip. Let us hear your words through his mouth, through his actions, and how he shared your message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we started the book of Acts, or chapter 8, we saw this kind of a revival going out into Samaria. And it ends here in chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch, first Gentile convert. Samaritans were half-Jews, so they're not really full Gentile converts, but the Ethiopian eunuch is. And this passage is full of fascinating scenes of, of a faithful and obedient servant in Philip to bring about the conversion of this really unique individual. So if you have a garden, I, I'm not a farmer. I, I do lawn farming. So I, I do little flower gardens and stock tank garden because I'm not a farmer. That's all I do. But in order in order to really farm, you have to do stuff to the soil. You can't just go throw seeds and expect it to plant. You've got to till and prepare and and get everything ready. You have to prepare the soil. Planting the seed of God, the word of God, is much the same. In the parable of the sower, only the good, properly prepared soil brings forth the fruit of salvation. And this text we're going to look at indicates there are three features of the eunuch's heart that reveals his heart and his mind were prepared for Philip. And and I want us to notice, first of all, it is completely God doing all of this. Salvation originates in the sovereign will of God. It is an implementation of God himself, not us. You and I cannot bring salvation to anybody. Salvation is God's job. It's not my job to save you. It's not your job to save someone else. It is God's job. And the Bible describes a human condition in very painful terms. Ephesians chapter 2, once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins. If something is physically dead, it, um, it lacks the ability to respond to physical stimulus or, or voice, anything. In the same way, if you and I are spiritually dead because of sins, we lack the ability to respond to that spiritual stimulus. Which is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Considers them to be foolishness, cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Every person, I want you to hear this, every one of us in this room, at the very core of our being, we are sinful, completely unable to understand and accept the things of Christ. On our own, we can't do it. It doesn't matter what we look like on the outside, how noble, smart, attractive. On the inside, we are dirty. How many of you heard the phrase, is pure as snow? Yeah, I've heard that. I did a little looking into that. Do you know snow is not pure? Did you know that every single snowflake at its origin around the center is a particle of dust from the atmosphere? The wind carries this dust in the atmosphere, and water vapors condense and freeze on it. And so no matter how crystal clear that snow looks, no matter how pristine at the very core, is dirt. How ironic that it takes this molecule, this thing that coats around it that makes it look pure, kind of similar to us. the very core, we're dirty because of our sin, and yet... We end up getting wrapped around at the elements of Christ. No matter how you dress it up, every human at their core is dirty. God in his sovereign grace begins to work internally and externally in this. So this happens in the Ethiopian eunuch. Let's jump into Acts chapter 8, verse 26. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south through the desert road that runs through from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. We're going to hit that word a lot. It is a desert place. So what does it not have? Life. What would you say? Water. Shade. Okay? I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want to go. I don't like being hot and sweaty. Amen. That's my brother right there. Literally, it really is my brother, just so you know. Okay? So this desert place, the circumstances that led to this man's salvation is not coincidental. They were sovereignly sovereignly arranged by the Spirit of God. And here's the thing, God arranges salvation. It's not us trying to work it through and trying to set all the steps. It is God who does this. This was no mere chance encounter. And it's certainly not the result of clever human ingenuity. Apart from the Spirit's orchestration of events, salvation is not going to come to anybody. God is the one who arranges it, which leads us to the next verse. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down um, to the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza, so he started out. I want you to understand and consider for a moment the irrationality of what God is asking Philip to do, what he's commanding him to do. Philip is in Samaria, the northern part of above Jerusalem. He tells them to go to the southern road, to the desert. Now, what's happening in Samaria? Thousands are coming to faith in Jesus. The ministry is exploding. Lots of people are coming to Christ. This is an active church. This is great things. And God says, this great ministry you're doing, leave it. And go to the place where there's no life. Go to the place where there's no sustenance. All kinds of people, great and small, powerful and weak, are coming to know me, but you go somewhere else. Yeah, as far as most preachers I know, they don't leave a very thriving, huge congregation and go to some potent little church in the middle of nowhere. It's always the opposite of what happens. And I would say Philip is kind of like the Billy Graham of his day. And if you uh, notice in the commentary Luke added about this place, a desert road, leave this bustling metropolis with all the stores, with all the restaurants, with all the amenities, and you go to where there's nothing. How How many people do you think are traveling on a desert road? Not many. You know why? It's a desert road. it's simple. But God calls Philip to do the atypical, the something different. He calls him to leave the thriving ministry and go to this place. And the scripture says, Philip went. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, God's had me do things. He's told me to do things. And I had to wrestle with some of them if I wanted to obey him or if I wanted to do it my way. We don't know if Philip wrestled or how long he wrestled. What matters is he got up. And he went. He was obedient to the Spirit's prompting. And that's how God works. He accomplishes his sovereign work through the available, submissive, simple human instruments. One of the most fascinating artworks for me to see is wood carvings. Man, I just think it's amazing what they can do. How an artisan can take a block of wood like this. Okay, that's a huge tree trunk. And through skilled hands, this artist created this that blows my mind there's another artwork it's the longest wood carving in the world it's in Japan oh my goodness it it is beautiful. no one says looks at this artwork and says wow those tools that did it did a great job. that was a great chisel work. they don't give credit to the instruments. To the tools. They give credit to the artist. And what we need to understand, what Philip knew, is we are instruments. And the artist of salvation. We don't bring it, God does, but we need to be willing tools in his hand. See, Philip chose to be submissive to God. He chose to be submissive to God in that he would be whatever God needed him to be. Here's the third thing we'll notice. God arranged the details of getting Philip to the unit. Philip responded with submissive will. But look what God's already done in verse 27. So Philip started out, he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the cantank, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Wait a minute. Here is this Ethiopian, a foreigner, a eunuch. A court official of Kandek, the queen of Ethiopia, who is in charge of her treasury, and he came to Jerusalem to worship. Didn't say he came for business. He wasn't here on the queen's errand. Scripture says he came to worship. Verse 28. And he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Okay, here's some stuff we need to know. In that day, Ethiopia was a very large African kingdom located south of Egypt. To those in the Mediterranean region, this would have been the ends of the earth. Now think back to Acts 1.8. The real power and authority in the kingdom lay with the queen, Tandik, and was that wasn't her proper name but a title like Pharaoh or something. And here you have a man who's in charge of all of her treasury. He's the chief financial officer of the Ethiopian kingdom, the head of all the finances. And the text says he's a eunuch. How many of you know what a eunuch is? Yeah, most most of you do, right? So um, a eunuch is a castrated male. Simply put, kind of like my dog. He's a eunuch. In this culture, this would be common practice, particularly those in a Roman, a royal kingdom. These eunuchs would be put in charge of the harems, concubines, or prostitutes that were there for the king's pleasure. That way, he wouldn't defile the king's toys. Let's put it that way, okay? Um, they put the eunuch in charge, so there's no whatever. This particular eunuch had risen to the ranks of administration to the place of CFO. And here's what's really amazing about this. Not only is he a Gentile, which had been a huge barrier for him to come to God or to Jews, but he's a eunuch. Look what it says. This is a scripture I hadn't read until this last week Deuteronomy 23 1. If a man's testicles are crushed or his penis is cut off, he may not be admitted in the assembly of the Lord. Well, that's blunt. If this has happened to him, he cannot come to church. He is not allowed in the temple. It's kind of graphic, isn't it? We, we really don't talk about stuff like this. But I want to tell you something first and foremost. If it's in the Bible, we're going to say it. And secondly, if it's in the Bible, it means something. And so we need to understand that. This was under the Old Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, this man would not have been able to worship God fully. But where or when is this eunuch Doing this? When is he reading? When is he trying to worship under the new covenant? And the Spirit is breaking down these kind of barriers here the barrier of his ethnicity, his ancestry, the barrier of his uh, maimed condition. The text said he came to worship in Jerusalem. That's about 1,200 mile journey one way. That's a long time to go on a desert road. So he was committed in this. But while in Jerusalem, he could not go to the temple. He couldn't go to the synagogue. Because he's a Gentile and he's a eunuch. Now we don't have details on how he came to know the God of Israel. We know there are some displaced Jews that were scattered and talking. Um... In northern Africa, he may have been exposed to that faith style, but it's obvious he was searching. The eunuch had a searching heart towards God. He was searching for him. And God met this man on the point of seeking. God met him in a dramatic fashion, sending Philip, the evangelist, to him. Notice, Philip had nothing to do with this eunuch up to this point. He's not the one who introduced him to Christ. He's not the one who pointed him to the monotheistic worship. He's not the one who pointed him to the one and true only God. Philip came as a result of this guy already knowing. This is the part of the divine gardener's soil preparation. And God has done this type of preparation billions of times before. And in fact, he's done it for each one of us. Prepared the soil so that we could hear the gospel. Well, let's look at Philip's encounter in verse 29. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go over and walk beside the carriage. And Philip ran over. This man had a desire to know God. He was aware that in order to, um, for God to be fully known, he had to be known through Scripture. This eunuch was eager. He was seeking. He owned a, scripture, or a, a copy of Scriptures. We don't understand the cost of Scriptures compared to them. I counted this last week. I have 22 physical Bibles in my office. That's a lot of God's Word. Most of them are all various translations. So I have a lot of Bibles. That's not including the ones that are in our home. How many of you own multiple copies of Scripture? Back in this day, to own a copy of Scripture was incredibly expensive because they were all handwritten. And because they're handwritten, and in this time period, in order for them to copy it, they would read a phrase, copy it, check it, check it, check it, okay. Then we go to the next phrase, and they do that all the way. They didn't have whiteout. So if they got halfway through the book of Isaiah, and then he misspelled something got rid of that scroll because it was tainted. And they start over. Can you imagine how long it takes to copy the whole book of Isaiah by hand? So how expensive that would be. He obviously, this eunuch, had some deep pockets. He was willing to spend that because the Word of God was important. We would uh, know nothing about God except... Um, that He had chosen to reveal Himself to us. God has chosen to reveal Himself without Scripture. If we didn't have Scripture, we wouldn't know anything about God except through nature. God has revealed Himself in nature, and you can see that in how things work, in the harmony, and, and there's a balance, and there's a an order to things. But Scripture is where we can get intimate with God. The existence of God and His attributes Can be seen and understood in a general way, but when we know Scripture, like it opens the veil into God's heart. Something else to note here Philip was sensitive to the Spirit's prompting. Verse 29 says, The Spirit said, Go over to this chariot, and Philip ran. I don't run. It's obvious, I know. Have you ever ran in a desert road? And notice what what is the eunuch riding in? A chariot. How many of you can keep up with a horse? Or a pair of horses pulling a chariot. Why did he have to run? Because the horse is trotting. And Philip's got to run to keep up. He was willing to obey and even put himself at a discomfort to run. And a Jewish man in that culture does not run. It's a disgrace for a man to run in the Jewish culture. And Philip ran. He ran because God's word was more important. This person that God is trying to say is like, forget if I get disgraced. I want this person to know the word of God. I thought about this in some modern terms. Imagine you're walking on the sidewalk downtown. You come to a red light. And as it's um, the red light, you look to your left and there's a car waiting at the red light. You walk over, knock on the window and says, mind if I run next to you? Can you imagine this eunuch he's sitting there reading and, what's this freak running next to me for? I mean, can you imagine some, there's a true story and we wish we had video of this, okay? My dad, we're on a vacation and the motorhome isn't really running. We're going down the, the ramp, the exit ramp, and dad decides to push, jump out. And kind of keep it going so we can get to the next one. And he jumps out, it's fifteen miles an hour. It's not bad. He thought he could just keep the momentum going. He jumped out of the door, my mom's in the passenger seat, and dad disappears. And then mom sees hands coming in, and he is struggling, running as fast as for 15 miles an hour, grabs the door, my mom starts laughing. She doesn't help. She's laughing because here's this little short red-headed guy trying to run with his tiny legs. And he's trying to get up there. He can't breathe really good. He jumps in, slams the door, and his face is all red. And my mom's almost peeing her pants because she's laughing so hard. Can you imagine reading the book of Isaiah and there's this guy running next to you? What are you doing? This would have been a weird scene, but yet God orchestrated it. All of it's going to grab your attention. Look what happened in verse 30. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, he's running. Can you talk while running very well? He said, do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come into the carriage and sit with him. Here's a stranger. You're running next to that car, I said. Do you understand what you're talking about? No, can you get in? Are you going to stop or do I have to hop? So Philip gets in, um, sits with him. the passage of scripture he'd been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to slaughter. Notice the perfect timing of all this. And as a lamb is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch turned and asked Philip, tell me. Was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? This is God's divine sovereignty. Not only was this eunuch a God-seeker, not only had he purchased the scripture at a great personal expense, not only was he reading it out loud, but Philip ran up there. He is reading one of the clearly, most clearly, arguably clearly, scriptures about Jesus. All at the time, the Spirit said, Philip... Get up there. What did Philip have to do? He had to listen and obey. God divinely orchestrated this. Verse 35, so beginning with this same scripture, Philip told this eunuch the good news about Jesus. Philip started right here from the scripture that he was reading and began to tell the eunuch about Jesus Christ. And here's the application. You and I need to understand this an effective presentation of the gospel, must be based on Scripture. Our witness must be Bible-based. Philip didn't talk about what he just heard while running. Philip didn't talk about Samaria. Philip talked about Scripture. Now, personal testimony is very helpful. Our witness, though, cannot be emotionally based. It cannot be circumstance-based. It is the Word of God that inspired the Spirit of God. And God does, um, and that is inspired by the Spirit of God. And God does saving and sanctifying work through His Word, not ours. There's power in God's Word. So our witness needs to be Bible-based. Look again, though. So beginning with the same Scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. So it must be based on Scripture hands it has to be Christ centered. Those are the two things about our messages. When we're going to talk about Jesus, it needs to be about Jesus and it needs to be found in scripture. If you, if you never get around to talking about Jesus and his life, death and resurrection, then you have not done any witnessing. Well, I, I was really nice to him. I don't care. It's not a witness. A witness tells the facts, which are based in Scripture, about who Jesus is, which we learn more in Scripture, and you tell them all of it. I know we can drop little God hints in our conversations with people. I've been guilty of that, and just thinking, well, maybe they'll pick up on it. We're not that smart. Wives, do your husbands ever pick up on the hints? No, we're not that smart. We don't pick up subliminal hints, although we still try to think that. Maybe if I huff a little more, they'll understand. You alright? Need me to open a window? We don't get it. So why would we think in witnessing, all i have to say is, bless you. We need to have Bible-based conversations that talk about Jesus. It is not a witness until you testify about Christ and His work. And I might add this, a sermon is not a Christian gospel-centered sermon if it never mentions Jesus and his work on the cross for your salvation. You can go through the entire book of Acts and you'll see every sermon preached. They all, without exception, center on Christ Jesus. Now, I read lots of sermons trying to find good ones, trying to find inspiration. I love to steal illustrations because there's a lot of smart people out there and I can find great illustrations while I was reading through a sermon series on one church. Very influential church. Here are the titles and the descriptions of their sermons that they posted on their website. The first one, now what? What is that thing you wish was different about you? You try to change your response, circumstances, or behavior, but it doesn't work. You just can't make progress. You just can't break through. Second one, in the other series, anything but average. You can see it on that second paragraph there. You don't want to be an average husband or wife. You don't want to be an average parent. You don't want to be an average friend, employee, or boss. And then the the next series after that: life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, want life and liberty? Everyone wants to pursue happiness, but few experience those things to the fullest. Sometimes we feel trapped in life. We're unhappy. Why is that? One reason is we need to uncover, discover, and rediscover and recover our stories. Now I read those and I thought, I wonder what these sermons are about. I started reading through them, and there was some scripture, but what is the primary purpose or target of all these? Us. How we felt. How we would feel at ease. How I would feel like a better person. How I could discover my story. It's all about us. How you can make a change, you can break through and be anything but average. Churches that spend their time focusing on... Us, on people, on you, are exploding with uh, growth because we all want to be the center of attention. We all want to be told how good we are. As Toby Keith put it, and I don't quote country music very often, so if I quote it, you know, it's, it's a good line. He said, I want to talk about me, want to talk about I, want to talk about number one, oh me, my, my. What I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I want to talk about me. So many times when it comes to our testimony, they talk about me. Not about what God's done. Not about who He is. Not what Scripture declares Him to be, but oh, and my life got so much better. It's not about us. This man-centered preaching has infiltrated all the churches and, and let me just say something, it's infiltrated me at times. It sells. Makes people feel good. Makes me feel good until I look at Scripture. What we see in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Acts, is gospel centered preaching, no matter your feelings. It's about God, and it's His Word. Philip opened his mouth, beginning with Scripture. He told him about Jesus. No doubt he probably used other passages, and it said the eunuch had a whole scroll of of Isaiah. But he did so, all this, to tell them about Jesus. Paul put it this way in the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 2. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Paul was not just a motivational speaker. He was a gospel preacher. How Paul talked about Christ is how you and I need to talk about Christ. It's not about lofty words. It's not about some secret wisdom. It's about the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. He came to earth because you and I chose to sin. He went to the cross to pay the penalty that we should bear. And then he was raised from the dead because he is pure and holy. And the only way you can go to heaven is him. Period. That's it. And then we look in the scripture to prove that because it's all littered in there. At some point in our conversations, we've got to get to the main point. You keep the main point, the main point. And it's not me, it's all about Jesus. Now, I can imagine the Ethiopian eunuch because if he spent this much money, he must know something about the worship. And when Philip said it's available to you, it could have led to questions. Don't you see the color of my skin? I'm not a Jew. Don't you see? I'm not a from around here. I'm Ethiopian. I'm not Jewish, just said. I'm not even a half-breed like the Samaritans. When I was in the temple, when I was in Jerusalem, I couldn't even go in the temple. And I could just see because it's the whole scroll of Isaiah, and I could see God doing this. We don't know if it's true, but look what Philip could have done. Isaiah chapter eleven, verse ten and eleven. In that day. The heir to David's throne, which we know is Jesus, will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people, those who remain in Assyria and northern Egypt and southern Egypt, Ethiopia, Elium, Babylon, Hamath, and all the distant coastlands. Is Jesus. He is the descendant of David. And all his people, even to the outermost uh, parts of the world, even Ethiopia, you can be saved. And Philip can say that with scriptural authority. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past, it doesn't matter how you've been maimed by sinfulness in this world. Join yourself to the Lord and today you can have everlasting inheritance and you'll never be cut off from his family again. Here's what I'd love to know what happened. I want to know what happened after. We can't know what all happened in this conversation. I want to hear the details of this. But we know... ...that this Ethiopian eunuch understood the truth of the gospel. And how do we know this? Because look what it leads to in Acts 8.36. As they rode along, they came to some... What is that? What road are they on? What kind of road? A desert road. If you ever wonder, does God ever orchestrate things? Not only did Philip show up at the right time when this guy was reading from Isaiah 53... Not only did Philip know the scriptures and start preaching, but at this moment they came on a desert road to some water. I've been in some of the desert of Nevada and stuff like that. I've been in the Badlands. There's not much water. And what does the youth, the eunuch, say? Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? From this statement, we can infer that along the way, Philip communicated to him about the importance of it. Why would he say this phrase unless Philip had already said it? The baptism is one of these first steps of Christian obedience. That once someone has repented of their sins, they have faith, they confess and are repented, and then they are baptized to walk in this walk with Jesus. The eunuch says, what is going to prevent me from... From being baptized. What prevented me from going in the temple was this. Well, what prevented me from being even in God's family was I wasn't even Jewish. But here, what's going to prevent me? And Philip it? He took him. I think what he's saying here is I've repented of my sins. I trust this Jesus you're talking about. I'm ready. And so the eunuch, through all this, we can see he had a believing heart. He had a believing heart. Look what it says, Acts 8, 38 and 39. He ordered the carriage to stop. They went down into the water. Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of God snatched Philip away, and the eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. That's just a cool scene. I want to see this. This eunuch was gloriously born again on that desert road somewhere between Jerusalem and Cush. And we can gather three things about his conversion. He confessed his faith. The eunuch gave the order, stop the chariot. Um, They both went down in the water. Now listen, no doubt they had jugs of water in the chariot. Because you're not going to travel a desert road without some water. So the eunuch did not say, I've got jugs of water here. What prevents me from being poured on or sprinkled on? Philip could have done that any time. But they came to this spot, so they waited until there was some pool of water in the desert. And they baptized him. What happens next is fascinating. The The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. My brain goes, beam me up, Scotty. And that's where I kind of go. Like he just went, whoop, he's gone. Um, Philip gone. But here's, here's the other thing. The eunuch went on his way rejoicing. This new believer had a rejoicing life. Because of what he experienced. Joy is a mark of a true believer. Joy is a, one of the fruit of the Spirit. No doubt this eunuch was so far away from home, the salvation of God in more ways than one, and this brought him not to the door of God's family, but into the home. A believing heart, a confessing mouth, rejoicing life, which leads to our most important question today. How does all this apply to each one of us, individually and corporately as a church? Here's what I want you to consider throughout the book of Acts. Luke keeps coming to this same theme. The Word of God keeps going out, and God brings people in. That's it. The Word of God goes out, and God brings people in. Luke is writing this record of the early church history to a man named Theophilus. It says, if Luke wants to continually remind him of this pattern, God keeps sending out. Or people keep sending out God's word, and God keeps bringing men. You can go all the way in the beginning of Acts. And daily, God added to their number those who were being saved. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 3.6. I planted the seed in your hearts. Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. We can't control, control whether or not people respond to our witness with genuine conversion. All we can do is plant, water, fertilize, dig the weeds, and trust God to do the actual growth. You and I cannot bring salvation to people. I can tell you personally, I have wanted this certain people to really give their life to Christ. I have fought them to try and get them to relinquish their life of this world, to put their faith in Jesus. I fought them because I wanted to get them saved. I wanted to save them. It's not my job. The, the prodigal son. Do you think the father wanted his son to leave? To go out and live a wild, use useless living? No. But he was waiting. Waiting to bring him back into the family. You and I cannot save people. What we can do is our part and allow God to do his part. We must be faithful like Philip to obey, to be submissive, and to speak. So individually, are you being faithful in doing your part? Are you actively listening for God's prompting? Are you obeying when he calls you to go somewhere to say something? Or are you content to sit back, be comfortable, and watch everybody else go to hell? That's really the truth of it. Philip, who would not, as a good Jew, go to Samaria, let alone ride in a chariot with a eunuch, an Ethiopian, was not willing to let one person go without hearing the gospel. Matthew nine thirty seven says, And Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. God is tilling the soil. Right now, America is in turmoil in our culture. And all he's doing, I really see, is he's throwing out weeds, he's preparing the soil, and he is calling, he is commanding Christians to get up and to speak up. Not about what I feel, not about what you feel or think, but to what Scripture actually says. And to point that right back to Jesus. If you've never accepted that gift, let me stop right now. If you've never accepted that gift of salvation, if you've never said, I need Jesus because I'm a sinner, I repent of that, and I want to be baptized and rise in a new life, what's stopping you? We don't have to sing another song. Let's do it. And for the rest of us who have already gone through that, what is keeping us from telling someone else? I get to go home to heaven. I want that day now. More and more when I look at this country, when I look at the people, I am tired. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of people I love and people I know rejecting God. To accept the world. But he hasn't called me home. He's called me to talk. He's called me to serve. And he's called you to do the same alongside me. Are we going to do it? We're going to stand. We're going to sing another song. And let us take this moment to, to praise him. Because he did save a wretch like us. Let's take a moment and honor him because he sent someone to teach that gospel message to us and let us ask him to prompt us and to fuel us to go do the same for someone else.